here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Number 877-381-3811, You know, with all the book requests, I made a proposal to our friends at Fox that I do a Saturday book show. I think that would be interesting. You know, the very latest show on Sunday or Saturday, because there's a lot of great authors with a lot of great books, and I can't use Life, Liberty, and Levin as a matter of policy, turns out, which is only once a week, one or two guests a week, for books. Because if I have a number of friends and colleagues, and uh, it just makes it impossible. It's very sad, because these are people I want to help, and these are fantastic books. And so on radio, because it's five days a week, not once a week, three hours a day, not one hour a week, And the audience is actually larger on this program than on Fox, uh, for any of the Fox shows for that matter. We try to do our very best in supporting excellent authors and people and excellent books on the radio program. So I just wanted to point that out. Now we have a situation where Joe Biden gives another one of these sort of speeches. He doesn't take any questions because he's incapable of answering them. What's happening to the economy? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? We have the same situation when it comes to the virus, same situation when it comes to Afghanistan, same situation when it comes to inflation, and now the same situation when it comes to product shortages. Comes out, he makes assertions, points fingers, says we're going to fix all this, just passed my massive bill. And then he shuffles off the stage. Here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. We discussed this at length the first hour last night. But let me add a few points. There are absolutely no pro-growth policies in any of the Joe Biden policies. No pro-growth policies whatsoever. This massive bill they want to spend or pass has massive spending. 
They want to fundamentally alter the economy. Well, they've done it without passing this bill. He has no pro-growth policies. The Democrats have no pro-growth policies. They have pro-government policies and pro-Democrat party policies. That's it. They have no economic expansion policies. None. None of what they want to do will expand the economy. It's a degrowth movement. Siphon off God knows how much money from the private sector into the hands of the politicians and the bureaucrats redistributed to their favorite organizations. Certain communities, certain communities are cut out. He can't grow an economy that way. So they have no economic expansion policy. So no pro-growth policies, no economic expansion policies. Embracing a degrowth, so-called climate change, Green New Deal policies. Massive confiscatory tax rates that they seek to put in place from those who create jobs, those who pay employees. Massive government spending to encourage people to be on the dole, to be on welfare, and not to be independently sufficient, self-sufficient. Undermining small businesses every step of the way. Now we've had situations in the past, severe recessions. Uh, We've had uh, severe flus and so forth. We've never had supply chain problems. Supply chain problems? So now we're having shortages. We're having price hikes because supply and demand. And we're having significant inflation. And we're going to have even bigger inflation. Uh, The Democrats are proposing massive tax increases. They're banning certain products. And they're putting in place certain mandates that are creating significant unemployment among individuals with the vaccines and so forth. And among the products they seek to ban, of course, are fossil fuels. I went back and I looked at the most recent data regarding fossil fuels. The oil rig count today, the oil rig count is 241 rigs. The gas rig count is 77. One year ago, the total active land rig count was 780. Oil rigs are down 427. 427. And gas rigs are down 54 compared to the November 2019 counts. Now that is enormous. So the price of gasoline is shooting up for you because of government policy, federal government policy. If you're going to attack something, if you're going to demand rules and taxes and policies that are going to create less of something, well, the price is going to go up. The price is going to go up. We didn't need to import any oil or natural gas. As a matter of fact, in the last days of the Trump administration, we weren't importing effectively. We were energy independent. We're not energy independent today. Now, rather than Joe Biden doing what he's doing, he could have given a speech today and say, hey, look, we're going to reverse course. 
We're going to open our federal lands to the drilling that was taking place and the exploration that was taking place. We're going to go back and allow these pipelines to be built, even though it's going to take longer and be more expensive. We're going to do these things. I'm going to take the hands around the throat of the fossil fuel industry and remove them. But he didn't do any of that. So the price for gasoline for you is going to continue to go up. The price for heating oil and natural gas and propane, ladies and gentlemen, is, is expected to go up this, this winter by about 50% to heat your homes. By about 50%. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to lash out against oil companies because that's what they do. He's lashed out against uh, meat-producing companies as if they have anything to do with anything. The price of meat's going up for obvious reasons. The price of corn's going up. And all these prices are going up because of Joe Biden's policies. And you need pro-growth, pro-economic expansion policies. And instead, what's happening is a shrinking is occurring. A shrinking is occurring. Even if you can get an HVAC system, a generator, a washer and dryer, a dishwasher and so forth, the price is up 25-30%. Even if you can get a new automobile, a Chevy as an example, the price is above the manufacturer's suggested retail price because these people need to stay in the business and they're selling far, far fewer automobiles. Now, in the long term, of course, we want to produce more here at home. No question about that. Maybe government policy should stop chasing people overseas, taxes and regulations and so forth. That's what does it. But in the near term, the problem is government policy. Now, all of a sudden, they talk about 24-7 uh, unloading the uh, freight ships. That it needs to be done 24-7. It's been done 24-7 throughout Europe, throughout Asia, in virtually every other industrialized nation on the face of the earth. Well, why hasn't it been done here? Because of labor rules. That prevented it. Labor rules that prevented it. Trucking and truckers. We have some of the most onerous rules when it comes to people qualifying to drive trucks. And some of the most onerous rules in terms of when truckers can drive trucks. And how many hours they can drive on the road. Okay, that needs to be lifted. And to some extent now they're going to lift it. To some extent, now they're going to lift it. The market can fix a lot of these things, ladies and gentlemen, if we would embrace it. But that's not what's being done for the most part. The Democrats view the virus as a way to fundamentally alter our voting system for good so they can grab power. The Democrats view the virus and the economic downturn as another opportunity to fundamentally alter our economic system, which will be a disaster. A disaster. That's what's taking place. And then Biden goes on to talk about, well, let's listen to this for a moment. Mr. Producer, cut six. Go. I want to be clear. This is across-the-board commitment to going to 24-7. This is a big first step in speeding up the movement of materials and goods 
through our supply chain. But now we need the rest of the private sector chain to step up as well. This is not called a supply chain for nothing. This means that terminal operators, railways, trucking companies, shippers, and other retailers as well. Strengthening our supply chain will continue to be my team's focus. If federal support is needed, I will direct uh, all... My team's focus? When has there been this focus? They say they've had this commission or committee going on now for some time. It's really the first we've heard of it yesterday. Really the first we've heard of it. He hasn't been focused on the supply chain. And he hasn't changed his, his agenda one iota. He's strangling the American economy. He's strangling free market capitalism. He's strangling small and large businesses. He's putting in place regulations that are counter to economic growth. He's putting in place mandates that are resulting in people getting fired. People who have serious jobs, important jobs, important roles in this country. He's the one that's standing in the way. We all know damn well, if Ronald Reagan were president or Donald Trump were president, this wouldn't be going on. This would not be going on. We had energy independence under Donald Trump. That's something we have sought to achieve for half a century or more. And with the stroke of the pen, Biden killed it. Killed it. I'll be right back. Mark In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. You know, it's not complicated. When you look at recent presidents who've embraced capitalism, what have you gotten as a result? Enormous economic growth. Now, of course, the Democrat Party is damn set on their own American Marxist model. And so they attack capitalism. They use class warfare. They try and turn the people against various enterprises and industries. Uh, they, they seek to tax in order to fund their ideological agenda and redistribute wealth to, wealth to their base. But none of this is successful in growing an economy and creating jobs. None of it. What did Ronald Reagan do? He did exactly the opposite. And when he came into office, we had a horrific recession and inflation. Horrific under Jimmy Carter. 
Inflation was much worse than it is today, although I'm going to tell you, I believe inflation is going to get much worse. Just a matter of time. What's going on with the people, quote-unquote, managing our economy in Washington, D.C.? But we didn't have supply chain issues. This is something that's relatively new, as far as I'm concerned. And we didn't have an administration that in the face of inflation and economic dislocation was putting people out of work through nonsensical mandates, banning products because they use fossil fuels like certain types of automobiles, um, and uh, here we are, energy independent, and actually unilaterally ensuring that we would rely on OPEC again. I predict there's more to come, folks, depending on how long this goes on. I predict this is going to go on, unless we have a change of leadership in Washington, D.C., in which case we will have brownouts and blackouts. As they push more and more products to use electricity, and the electrical grid is incapable of handling it all. These people are not good planners. They're not, they're not experienced in economics. They're not experienced in the private sector. We have uh, relatively young Marxists like AOC and even old Marxists, ideologues like Bernie Sanders who are pushing the agenda. That's why your gas prices are going up. That's why there's shortages. That's why we have inflation. That's why they push massive tax increases. That's why we were energy independent 10 months ago and we aren't today. Just a matter of time. And it's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse even if they don't pass their agenda. I'll be right back. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Mark Levin Show, where we create the talking points. Call in now, 877-381-3811. I want to play one final clip of Joe Biden to make a point. He talks about the supply chain issues, why we need infrastructure bill. There's two infrastructure bills. One is the infrastructure bill, of which... A relatively small percentage actually deals with infrastructure. It was over $1 trillion. And a couple hundred billion actually went towards physical infrastructure, even in that bill. 19 Republics voted for that with the Democrats. And then there's the second human infrastructure bill that has nothing to do with any of this. But Joe Biden uses it as, as an opportunity to suggest that it does. 
Cut seven, go. We need to invest in making more of our products right here in the United States. Well, Never you don't again. do that by massively increasing taxes, making it harder and harder to build factories in America and to invest in research and development in America and to, and to push up the capital gains tax in America and the corporate as well as individual federal income tax. How are you going to get people to invest in America when you're making it far more expensive and difficult to invest in America? Go ahead. And our economy be unable to make critical products we need because we don't have access to materials to make that product. So what is your plan to do that? Other than telling us what we need to do, what is your plan? You have no plan to expand production in the United States. You have no plan whatsoever. In fact, your plan is counterproductive. Go ahead. Never again should we have to rely too heavily on one company or one country or one person in the world, particularly when countries don't share our values when it comes to labor and environmental standards. I've said before. This is amazing to hear it from this guy who's basically owned and bought by uh, communist China. It's amazing to hear this from this guy. Or the guy that, that buckled to Putin and their pipeline. Go ahead. We're in, com- we're in the competition for the 21st century. We are America. We still have the most productive workers and the most innovative minds in the world. But, no, but it has nothing to do with you and your policies. It has everything to do with capitalism. Go ahead. But the rest of the world is closing in, and we risk losing our edge if we don't step up. The rest of the world is closing in. Are you going to spend more on the military? No. You're flatlining the military. Are you going to make it possible to expand our economic system? No. You're attacking our economic system. And so he has all this gibberish that he pours out of his mouth, and his plans are not only counterproductive, they're destructive of our economic system. Remember what they said? They want to fundamentally change our economic system. And we're the most productive workforce in the world. Okay, fine. So why are you subsidizing people not to work? Which is exactly what you did. And that, by the way, is part of the problem, too. We have 10.5 million jobs, important jobs, that are not being filled. We have almost 4 million people who dropped out of the workforce. And you have Joe Biden and his ilk talking about freebies. Endless freebies that make work less attractive to people. And government welfare more attractive to people. Take a look at the food stamps program. The expansion of the food stamps program, both the people who would qualify by lowering the bar and the amount of the increase in the program, is beyond reason. It's actually irrational. Utterly beyond reason. All right, but I don't want to spend the whole night on this. The Loudoun County School Board put out a statement today. And among other things in the statement, the Loudoun County Virginia School Board, in reaction to 
the rape that took place, the ninth grader, and the failure of the school board to do a damn thing about it in any significant way. The Loudoun County School Board and the superintendent said, well, this isn't the sort of thing that would rise to the attention of the board of directors, of the school board, the school board members. Disciplinary action. Now, this is a lie and it's a cover-up, and I'm going to tell you why. Many decades ago, as you know, I was on my, my town school board in Cheltenham Township, Pennsylvania. Started serving on that board when I was 20 years old. If, in fact, there was information about a violent act in any of our schools, it would have been brought to the attention of the school board. If there was information about a rape, I can guarantee you it would have been brought to the attention of the school board. Disciplinary action like, you know, Some kid shoots a rubber band across the room and they're suspended for a day. No, that wouldn't be brought to the school board. But a felony? One student against another? A violent rape? In one of the high school bathrooms? Yes, that would have been brought to the attention of board members. And you might recall when we discussed this at length... The chairman of the Loudoun County School Board asked the superintendent if there was any information about a violent assault in any of the bathrooms resulting from a transgender policy. And the superintendent said no. He said no. He lied. And in the statement issued by the Loudoun County School Board today, this evening, they don't address that. Certainly the information came to the attention of the superintendent. This is some minor event. So the parents at the Loudoun County School Board meeting yesterday, one by one, challenged the superintendent, Dr. Ziegler, and and the school board members. Cut three, parent one, go. When is Dr. Ziegler and this board going to be held accountable? What did you think was going to happen when you pushed porn into the classrooms and, and into the libraries and let boys into the girls' bathrooms? There's something seriously wrong with a system that prioritizes rape, reporting a rape internally to the superintendent so that they can control the narrative instead of calling the police. Hiding evidence from every parent in LCPS about a heinous sexual assault of a student that occurred in a bathroom so you could pass radical policy 8040 is more important to you than protecting the dignity and safety of our children against the likelihood of a repeat occurrence. And what they did is they moved that student from one high school, Stonebridge, to another. Where he apparently molested another female student. Cut four, go. Your moral compasses are busted. You, Dr. Ziegler, and our school board, every one of you, are complicit in these crimes against 
place that would be a danger to our students. And we've seen that happen. When is enough is enough? When are you going to change the policies to keep our children safe? This is not China. This is the United States of America. And we will not be silenced. You are liable for these injustices. Remove the superintendent immediately and then resign for your negligence and duplicity. End this nightmare. I am 14 years old. The fact that I have to be here to fight for my rights to not have your radical agenda shoved down my throat in school is not only concerning, it's upsetting. The superintendent and the school board should resign. What they've done here is hideous. Hideous. Meanwhile, the Democrats and their media over the last few days, a montage from Grabian, this is how they've approached the issue. Cut one, go. Violent looking, angry, spewing parents outside of these schools. Individuals intent on creating chaos for the sake of creating chaos. These actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. This becomes a security crisis in a sense for the nation. This may also mobilize even more law enforcement to to be at these meetings. It is dangerous to our children when the parents themselves are the school bullies. I think one of the worst things is the actions at the board meetings. Uh, You know, the, the, the calling of names, you know, the, you know, tyrant, Marxist, communist. We've never seen anything like we're seeing at these school boards now. What on earth has happened in this country? Sometimes they're not even talking. They are yelling and creating chaos. Things have become so scary at these meetings. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. New laws may be necessary. There's always the possibility uh, that people will face criminal prosecution for this kind of conduct. The FBI and federal law enforcement is tailor-made for that kind of national-level coordination with state and local police. The attorney general has put out a letter. They will take actions they take. What does it mean that something that is generally boring and neutral, like a school board meeting, has become a locus for violence? You look at the rage, the anger, you think, what is this doing to the children in those homes and their mental health? We have a board of ed working with the local school boards to determine the curriculum for our schools. You don't want parents coming in in every different school jurisdiction. And they want to shut down our schools and, you know, move kids over to charter schools and private schools um, without the oversight of the state. And that's wrong. Democrats and Democrat media, propagandists, trashing the parents. They have no evidence of pattern of violence whatsoever. We have plenty of it. Summer before last with Black Lives Matter and Antifa and most of these individuals, they defended Black Lives Matter and they do to this day. To this day. Eddie Glauday, I guess his name is, Jr., on the Morning Joe Today show, the Morning Joe show, the Morning Schmo, has become a cesspool of reprobates, miscreants, and malcontents, starting with the Morning Schmo himself. Cut to go. And you know, Willie, we often try to to say that these are fringe elements, and in some ways they are, but they've been mainstreamed. And, you know, in, in many ways, we're in a cold civil war, and every now and then it turns hot. It turned hot on January 6th. It's turned it turned hot. hot the whole summer before, didn't it, pal? Other ignoramus. Go ahead. Spaces. I mean, think about it. They, they reported her to the DCF, said that her child had burn marks. 
right? They're threatening brandishing guns. And oftentimes we think of these folks as just simply crazy outliers. But this is actually happening in people's everyday lives. And so we have to understand the stakes. We have to understand. Who, the... who is this idiot, Mr. Producer? See another professor? I've never heard of this clown before. He wasn't on his sanctimonious high horse, was he? Summer before last? Without people being angry? Crazy outliers? No, 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 no. He didn't talk about any of that. He didn't talk about a a real civil cold war. No, no. When our cities were burning and cops were attacked and people were being maimed and killed. Arson. Looting. No, 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 no. Mostly peaceful. It's the parents. Look what these parents are doing. I just want you parents to understand the media and the Democrat Party and these tenured professors, many of whom are Marxists through and through. Oh, he's another professor at Princeton. Gee, but he's tenured too. This is the crap that's being fed to your kids. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. So the Democrat Party has declared war on quality education, and they've declared war on the students and the parents. Let's be blunt. You have in New York City where they're destroying uh, advanced placement courses. Why? Because this is the notion of pure equality and equity. It's the lowest common denominator. Merit is attacked. Those of you who've read American Marxism, you got it. In education, I pointed out there, merit is under attack. Merit. Whether you're rating teachers and professors, or whether you're educating children. Merit is out the door. So the destroying quality education, they're replacing it with indoctrination. Indoctrination of anti-Americanism, anti-faith, anti-family. Racism. Bigotry? There's only one party promoting this. There's only one party that supports it, the Democrat Party. So if you support this, vote Democrat. But if you have enough of this, and you want to protect your children, and you're believing that, you should, that you're paying these confiscatory property taxes for a quality education in these public and government schools, then you need to stand up. You've got to vote these bastards out. I don't care what party you're in. This is poison. And the iron fist of the Department of Justice and all of its entities within the Department of Justice, you're not going to silence us. We're red-blooded Americans, regardless of our color, regardless of our religion. We are red-blooded Americans. We're not going to put up with this crap. We're not going to put up with the Biden administration and Merrick Garland and the rest of the frauds and freaks and phonies. Not going to happen. And we don't give a damn what the corrupt media have to say and these clown professors. Clown professors. What a clown show these colleges and universities have become. These buffoons who sat on their mouths while our cities were burning, while cops were under attack, while innocent people were being violently brutalized, in some cases murdered, but they find the parents offensive. 
in many ways, what you're seeing in these school systems, these bubbles, these, these cocoons in which the, the unions and the educational bureaucrats and the school boards all work together and are now plotting against students and teachers, against students and teachers, you're seeing really like some of these Marxist revolutions in different countries. Now, how do I know this? Not only because I've studied them, but because there's a woman who escaped Mao's China. She survived Mao's cultural revolution. And I want you to hear what she has to say. She's a Virginia mother about what's taking place in these schools. I'll be right back. Here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Epic Times. It's a great resource. Virginia mother who survived Mao's cultural revolution sees parallels in America. The communist political movement that devastated China decades ago is unfolding in America, warned Xi Van Fleet a parent-turned-activist who made national headlines after speaking out against critical race theory at a school board meeting. She said, when the cultural revolution started, I was a first grader. She said that all classes ceased at schools and colleges as older students proclaimed themselves Mao Zedong's Red Guards. Emboldened by Mao's slogan, to rebel is justified, the Red Guards did not hesitate to instigate violence and destruction on everyone and everything they considered counter-revolutionary. She said, with Mao's approval, no one could stop them, recalling a story she heard from someone who witnessed the Red Guards beating to death a man who was deemed an oppressor, an exploiter, for simply being able to withdraw a large sum of money from his bank. Don't tell uh, Secretary Yellen this. The perpetrators faced no consequences for the killing since the criminal justice system was already paralyzed. Another key figure of the Red Guards movement was to attack the four olds, namely old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. To enforce what Van Fleet described as a cancel culture, the Red Guards would go door to door to search and destroy any item that was connected to the period before the communist takeover of China. She said, I remember this whole street was just a mess of things destroyed and the people, those homeowners, howling and crying. While the madness and lawlessness of Mao's cultural revolution may sound extreme to Americans, Van Fleet warns that America is following a similar path. She said, one of the things that I noticed is people are afraid. There is the right way to talk. There are the right ideas. Those who don't share them feel like if they tell their own opinion, they might run the risk of being considered racist. A word like China's counter-revolution, she said. The term racism, much like the vaguely defined counter-revolution, no longer means anything, but serves as a political weapon, according to Van Fleet. She said, for the longest time, my understanding of racism is that someone who discriminates against someone else based on their race. But in the last few years, it has changed its meaning. Anyone who kind of disagrees with the ideology from the left 
becomes a racist, she says. During the Cultural Revolution, the term historical counter-revolution was used to criminalize people for what they did or said in the past. Van Fleet said there is also an American version of this. In Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam was called today a racist because in the past, when he was in college, he wore blackface. She said that's the equivalent of Chinese historical counter-revolutionary. In Mao's China, citizens were classified into the favorite five red categories and the undesirable five black categories based on their political identities. Descendants and members of the latter group, which included rich farmers and other class enemies, were routinely humiliated and forced to go to struggle sessions where they were made to confess their privileged status. I guess this is what critical race theory is all about. Van Fleet said this echoes with what advocates of CRT push to Americans and their children. She said, does that remind us of CRT? According to CRT, if you're born white, you're an oppressor. If you're born black, you're oppressed. And as oppressed people, you have no hope in this oppressive society. That's the most effective way to divide people, she says, and that's from the Marxist playbook to divide, pointing out that CRT is Marxist class struggle rhetoric, repackaged to focus on race so that it works better in American society. That's interesting, because that's exactly what I wrote months and months and months ago. And then they have gender, sexuality, and intersectionality. All of these are tools to divide, and they are rooted in cultural Marxism. Mao used that. The American left is using it now. What's happened here in America is nothing new, she said. It happened in China. It happened to me. If we let it go and not stopping it, we will have the same result. The result of the cultural revolution is the total destruction of the society. And that's what awaits us if we don't stop it. And that, of course, is the heart and soul of the book American Marxism. She's 100% correct. And she experienced this. And you can see it taking place in our society. You can see it taking place in our society in the political vessel through which this is occurring is the Democrat Party. And the, and the propaganda machine through which this is occurring is the so-called American media, the corrupt propaganda operation, the American media. And the indoctrination through which this is occurring, not only colleges and universities, but now you can see the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, the educational bureaucracy, the Association of Superintendents, and yes, many of our school boards. They are the indoctrination wing. And this is why you parents and taxpayers, some of you are both, of course, are doing exactly the right thing. And this is why we must resist the totalitarianism of the Biden administration and the Merrick Garland Department of Justice the totalitarianism of these, of these public sector teachers unions, which also hate America, in my view, also embrace these various American Marxist agendas. This is why they promote critical race theory, as I explain on the air and in the book. It is just a weapon through which to assert the Marxist agenda. And the transgender movement not transgenders per se, the transgender movement, and of course the degrowth, climate change, Green New Deal war, on capitalism, and private property rights. 
All of this is bundled into the Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Democrat Party bill that they call human infrastructure. Human infrastructure. By the way, who's ever heard of such an a depersonalization of human beings, human infrastructure. That without human infrastructure, we can't survive. Just another name, just a new nomenclature that seeks to conceal the Marxist roots of what they are doing. Which is why day in and day out, and I'm sure this, this lady would agree with me, we need to call this what it is, American Marxism. And we need to call those who promote it what they are, Marxists. They've gotten away with passive words like progressives, like democratic socialists, like activists. They've gotten away with that long enough. That is what's taking place. She is 100% correct. And the Loudoun County School Board, their statement doesn't add up. When the chairman of that school board asked the superintendent if he was aware of any act of violence that occurred in any of these bathrooms involving individuals such as transgender students, the superintendent said no. The superintendent lied through his teeth. The idea that school board members are unaware of a violent act by one of its students against another student is a complete lie. Why does it happen that often? In the Loudoun County school system? Of course not. Of course not. They moved that kid from the Stonebridge High School to the Broad Run High School. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Now where is the American press today? Scott Smith, the father of the ninth grader who was raped. Who was treated like a persona non grata. Who was treated like dirt who was used by the National School Board Association as one of their great examples of violence. When he's one of the great examples of a victim. The family has been victimized by the school system. Where's the compassionate media? Don't look to Princeton University and their professors. Don't look to Morgan State and their professors. Don't look to CNN or MSNBC. Don't look to Joe Scarborough, who apparently doesn't have any problems with this whatsoever. The little girl was raped. Why don't they train the rhetorical guns on the school board and the school bureaucracy rather than the parents? The violence was done and the cover-up as a result of the school environment. And the cover-up by the school board and the superintendent. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. So Janet Yellen, as you know, was head of the Fed for some period of time. She's now the Treasury Secretary. She's another radical kook. And she doesn't understand why you're concerned about the IRS adding 80,000 agents. Why you're concerned about the IRS being given, what is it, another $125 billion or something like that? $50 billion on top of what it already gets? 
So you'd have a massive army of auditors. Well, first of all, think about that for a second. The private sector is suffering right now. We need people to work in the private sector, to produce, to transport, to retail, to do all the things necessary for a thriving economy. And apart from all the rest of it, you're going to have 85,000 new bureaucrats working for one of the least responsible and threatening agencies in the federal government, the IRS? This is how you plan to grow the economy? By turning loose an army of tax auditors against the middle class? Ladies and gentlemen, they don't need 85,000 new auditors to get billionaires and millionaires. There aren't enough billionaires and millionaires for 85,000 auditors. It's aimed at you, and I'll prove it to you again. Because they want every transaction involving $600 to be monitored by the Internal Revenue Service. That's not the case right now. $600. Well, you're not going to catch tax cheats with a $600 transaction. This is just a way to get the foot in the door so they can spy on you and threaten you. That's what we're talking about. So here's Janet Yellen on CBS Evening News last evening. Um, And she's asked about this by Nora O'Donnell. Let's go to cut eight. Go. You want banks to report transactions of $600 or more. That's what the IRS wants. Does this mean that the government is trying to peek into our pocketbooks if you want to look at $600 transactions? Absolutely not. I think this proposal has been seriously mischaracterized. Um, The proposal involves no reporting of individual transactions of any individual. Look, the big picture... Yes, it does. What are you talking about? Yes, it does. A $600 transaction. They want to be able to monitor it. And the banks have to report it. What is she talking about? These people in this administration, they lie worse than your typical American Marxist. Go ahead. We have a tax gap that over the next decade is estimated at $7 trillion, namely a shortfall in the amount that IRS is collecting due to a failure of individuals to report the income that they've earned. What does that have to do with the $600 transaction? It's like I said last night, ladies and gentlemen, she's talking out of both sides of her mouth. No, 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 you have nothing to worry about. We're not actually going to monitor individual $600 transactions. On the other hand, we have a $7 trillion tax gap, whatever that means. This is their claim that people aren't paying their taxes. They have no way of knowing. If people aren't paying their taxes, you would, fig- you would think they would figure out who it is, rather than just estimate how much isn't being paid, right? But obviously, they're coming after you. They're going to threaten you. You're going to cough up money just to get them off your back. Go ahead. 
billionaires, is that among people who are transferring $600? No, it tends to be among high-income individuals whose income is opaque and the IRS doesn't receive information about it. If you earn a paycheck, you get a W-2, the IRS knows about it. But high-income individuals with opaque sources of income that are not reported to the IRS... $600? Six hundred dollars. You may get a W two, but let's say you you do something on the side and you get six hundred dollars. You put that in your account, or you sell something at a garage sale. Six hundred dollars at a garage sale. Six hundred dollars used items. Is that a federal tax event? But the IRS will know about it. The IRS will know about it. Even if you get a W-2. Or you participate in... You know, over the weekend, you you join neighbors and you sell stuff. The IRS going to come after you? I guess they will. Go ahead. Fraud and cheating that's going on. And all that's involved in this proposal is a few aggregate numbers about bank accounts, the amount that was received in the course of a year, the amount that went out in the course of the year. That's not what it says. It says $600. $600. Go ahead. If somebody reports an income of $10,000 and they had $3 million um, go out of their checking account, that tells the IRS... Oh, come on. That's not $600. What the hell is wrong with this woman? she make any sense to you, Mr. Producer? Somebody reports $10,000 income and $3 million go out of their account. You don't need to change the laws to audit that. That's obviously an issue, isn't it? We're not talking about that. So why does she have to argue in the alternative? We're talking about 600 bucks, And she's talking about you. And she's saying if you sell stuff at a garage sale or whatever it is, a neighborhood, uh, whatever it is, if you go to a flea market and, you're, and you've got 600 bucks coming in and you're not reporting that on your income tax returns, we're coming after you. That's what she's talking about. But she dare not say it. She dare not say it. Under the Biden administration, you're a tax cheat. This isn't an attack on millionaires and billionaires. If somebody reports an income of $10,000 and they make $3 million, or they get $3 million brought into their account, of course banks are going to report that. Of course that's going to be obvious. That has nothing to do with this legislation. This has to do with you. Coming after you. You make an extra 600 bucks. well, they want you to pay taxes on it. That's what they're talking about. You got your W-2, but we're missing that 600 bucks. And maybe there's 100 million of you. A hundred million of you, see? And you're not telling us about the 600 bucks. Well, right there, what are we talking about? We just made up the difference. We've just made up the difference, haven't we? $600 times a hundred million, what is that? Is that six trillion? Maybe it's six trillion, I don't know, I'm not an expert. Maybe it's 600 million, but that would make up a big piece of it, wouldn't it, ladies and gentlemen? This is about coming after you. has nothing to do with somebody reports a $10,000 income and $3 million comes into their account. That's absurd. I'll be right back.
Mark Levin, the conscience of conservatism. Call Mark now at 877-381-3811. All right, let's take a couple of calls here. Let's go. uh, Brian's on the road listening on the Mark Levin app, a trucker. We have a lot of wonderful truckers out there. Uh, Brian, how are you and what's cooking? Oh, hey, Denali, uh, I just want to tell you, we love you. And, Thank you. Um, I, yes, sir. Uh, I was just going to mention, you, you touched on it earlier today, uh, but uh, the, the thing about the port in California, and and I'm from Georgia, but kind of the same thing in, in, uh, in the Savannah port also, but the California, they, they restricted in 2011 with the engines and the truck that you got to have a truck that's over just newer than 2011 to even go into california and they and they passed something called ab5 that a lot you know for a long time they they've been the owner operators were pretty much doing the bulk of the care get, get the containers and stuff out of the port in california and they have basically outlawed owner operators going in and out of there so when they say there's a driver shortage, there's not. It's, it's their policy. They're, All right, let me, let me be clear on this. You're saying California makes it difficult for owner-operators, that is non-union drivers, I guess, to actually uh, uh, get, the, uh, get these, what do they call them? Off the boats? Containers. Get the containers yeah, off the, the boats? Yeah, contain, the containers, yes, sir. Uh-huh. I was unaware of this. Yeah, they... they yeah, a lot, most of, pretty much all over the country, owner operators haul or, or carry the containers off of the ships, and they and they that's nationwide. Mm-hmm. And um, they got companies to do it, but a lot, the, the bulk of it is, is owner operators. And in California, they they keep, you know they keep talking about the driver shortage. There's not a driver shortage. They they have basically outlawed owner operators coming in and out of the ports in California. All right, Brian. Thanks for the information. Don't hang up. We're going to send you a uh, American Marxism sign. Thank you. I didn't know that was the case. Let's go to, um, let's see, Doug Cincinnati, Sirius Satellite, also a trucker. Doug, how are you? How are you doing, Mark? It's a great day to be a trucker. Yes, it is. Here. But anyway, hey, I wanted to touch on the taxes for a minute. I think that's just Joe's way of getting by it. Uh, uh, Hunter's baby's mama. But uh, they, yeah. uh, this, this trucking industry was hurt when, the, when they started this driverless. They keep saying they're going to they're gonna come out with driverless trucks. And I want to say something to all you young guys out there. Come out and get a job. It's not going to happen. Driverless so they, trucks? They Are you kidding me? Into yeah, that's what they're saying. And they can hack into it, to your website now. You know how it is. They've hacked into hospitals, mm-hmm. held them for ransom. you got trucks running up and down the road with hazardous material. I myself have hazardous material on right now. Mm-hmm. You get a guy that hacks into a, a system and runs that truck through a school building, a hospital, you know, well, let, let me ask you something, Doug. The, the prior trucker, Brian, said it's very difficult for owner-operators to operate in California. What's your experience? Well, it's not only California. It's New Jersey, too, Mark. 
Mm-hmm. It's all over, and it's all for the unions. The unions set this up. The unions are controlled by the ports. And uh, they control the ports. They control the in and outs. And, yes, California has had a restriction since 211, and that's, that's the whole deal there is they, they go as far as the cleanliness of a truck. If your truck's not spick and span, they'll boot you out of the state. They now, this is fascinating to me because all the news reports that you're hearing, none of them have commented on this. None of them have looked into this. Now, again, I'm ignorant about this. Are more truck drivers union or owner-operated or non-union or, or what? Well, the Teamsters uh, Union controls both the LTL, uh, the lesson truckload freight, and they also control the ports. So they control the owner-operators, what they do and what they don't. There's a lot of people out here that are striving to make a living driving a truck, you know, a lot of them sit in truck stops and have to look at the board and pick and, and choose what loads are going to get them close to home. You yeah. know, and there, there's a lot involved in trucking, and it's probably the most regulated job. We could only work so many hours. Well, that was my point earlier. I mean, you're very, very restricted how many hours you can drive a week and a day. Hey, I get a DUI, I'm done. I'm done with everything, my whole livelihood. Mm-hmm. Now, that judge that ruled on my case, he can have a DUI and drive back and forth to work without a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of restrictions on truck drivers. So, and, and I know I'm not a drinking man. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not me a drinking neither. man. But I do like to, to have my wine every now and again. But this is what happens out here on the road. You know, these guys... These guys live in those trucks, Mark. They make a living. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm home every day. Mm-hmm. But All right. All right, Doug, I thank you for the information. Very interesting. Don't hang up. We're going to get you a signed American Marxism as well. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, we have some great callers tonight. I want to continue. Let us go to Tiffany. Uh, let's see. Omaha, Nebraska, Sirius Satellite. Tiffany, how are you? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. I just wanted to point out how obvious the lie is about the Loudoun County School Board not knowing about that poor girl being raped. Mm-hmm. The man wouldn't have been asked for the information in the meeting if he wasn't normally expected to have it. The man wouldn't have been asked for the... In other words, the chairman wouldn't have asked the superintendent, correct? You're exactly, exactly. right. You know he what? Great point. Why would he ask for it if the superintendent wouldn't know in the first place? And let me exactly. tell you something. Let me tell you something. You're talking about a school, so there's, there's what, 70,000, 80,000 people in Loudoun County, a school system. Um, there's no way the superintendent did not know that a rape took place in one of their high schools. Uh, and there's no way that those board members didn't know either. There's just no way. Uh, this isn't some minor event where disciplinary action, they say in their statement, isn't typically shared with the board. We're not talking about disciplinary action. We're talking about one student raping another. That's a little different. Well, the police were called to the school. They have to know that. And the police, I don't, were, were they called to the school? I know they were informed. Uh, and they, they did a whole rape kit, and they did the whole thing. And you have to assume the police told the school system, too. And the school system moved this kid from one high school to another. That is the, uh, the, uh, the perpetrator. So, uh, no, this is all BS. This school system knew, 
And as I said before, if I were Scott Smith, the father, I'd bring a massive lawsuit against that school system, against the superintendent, and against the board members. That's what I would do. All right, Tiffany, don't hang up. Thank you very much for your excellent call. We'll ship a book off to you, too, please. Just stick with us. All right. Let us go to Daniel, Stockton, California, on the Mark Levin app. Daniel, how are you, sir? Yes, sir, I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, sir, I just, uh, I'm uh, been listening to you about talking about everything that's going on with the schools, and it's just terrifying. And uh, what's also equally terrifying is the absolute indoctrination of the military. And mm-hmm. after serving for six years, I saw what was happening firsthand. Just, they take these young kids and basically start brainwashing them. And whatever wind, whatever way the wind blows in D.C. is policy in the military, and it's just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Indoctrinating our kids, indoctrinating our kids in colleges and universities, indoctrinating young men and women signing up for the military, that pretty much covers the whole uh, playing field, doesn't it, sir? It does, and it's, uh, it leads into my question for you. I was listening to your book, and uh, there's a part in it that says going after like the lower-level Marxists and changing their mind doesn't do much to change anything since it's like a hydra. And uh, my question is, if going after the lower level isn't very effective, how do we, as individuals, go after the higher-level people to change their minds and see the folly of their ways? I don't, I don't, I don't think we should ignore these so-called lower-level people. I think we should engage at the street level, our neighborhoods, our communities, with all people. And I think this book will help you do it. That said, I think we need to take on the source of these, uh, these forces, which we never do. We need to take on the teachers' union. We need to go after them through the IRS. We need to gather information on what they're doing through the Freedom of Information Act. We need to take on the school boards and the school bureaucrats including the superintendent, again, using the Freedom of Information Act, collecting information on how they select courses, how they select teachers. We need information on the teachers' contracts. Most people in most communities have no idea what's going on with these teachers' contracts and so forth. I've also argued it's not in the book as a result of a caller to the radio show, and I just modified it somewhat, that we need Internet cameras in every classroom. If it's good enough for the cops, it's good enough for business, it should be good enough for us, because that's how most parents learned that their children were being indoctrinated about racism through critical racism theory and genderism and all the rest. They had no idea what was taking place, because the school boards and the others, they're in cover-up mode. So I think we ought to hit them high and hit them low. That's my view anyway. And I'm going to send you a signed copy of American Marxism. I'll be right back. Mark have been quite good so uh let's see here let us go to jim in surprise arizona another trucker friend jim how are you listening on sirius xm uh mark it's a great honor to speak to you have been listening to you for decades as i start out by saying every problem in this country is caused by a career politician Hey, I've been in the trucking industry for 32 years. I got—I always bought brand new trucks every three years. Put about 400,000 miles. I'm a solo driver. Wow. Right now, when you go to fuel your truck, 
It's a national, on my route, this is my truck. On my route, it's $4 a gallon. Now, you got the diesel exhaust fuel. That's going up through the roof now, too. That's three forty-four a gallon. Combine them together just to start fueling your truck is $7.44 a gallon. Granted, the death fluid's not as big as your diesel tanks, but you're still starting out paying $7.44. Now, you put everything else in, in, in line with all the other costs, your taxes. I, like I said, I buy a new truck every three years, so my truck payment's $38.75 a month. You put everything else, your cost of fuel, over the time of a year, it's over $120,000 a year wow. to operate this truck. And so by now, the way, that, that payment, that monthly payment on the trunk is like a mortgage payment. It's more than my mortgage, Mark. My mortgage is 1200 bucks. My truck payment is 3875 But what you see in the trucking industry right now, we have a massive amount of trucks that are broke down due to the fact of the death system they put on these trucks. If your death system goes out in your truck, because a lot of guys don't put APUs, which is a generator in the back that operates it, at night, you shut your truck off. Don't idle these new trucks, guys. You're killing your motor because the, the diesel exhaust fuel is bad. It's what it did, you run them down. They get water in there. It calcifies. It puts your truck in the D rate, and then you cannot operate your truck. you got to take it in. If you have to get that system baked, that's $11,000. Right now, i got a buddy that has a depth sensor for the DEF. His sensor went out. That's $2,000. It's an eight-week backlog order to get that part. We don't have the parts. Mm -hmm. We don't have computers. These guys that own a truck like me, if my truck went down for eight weeks, Mark, I got to bankrupt because I won't be able to sustain sitting off work for eight weeks. I have bills, too. I'd have to go out. Isn't it amazing, as I listen to you, uh, Jim, how little attention is paid to the needs and the requirements of truckers and their trucks when, in fact, without you guys and gals, Look what happens. I mean, it's amazing to me. And they constantly tax you guys. They constantly regulate you guys. The Department of Transportation does it. The states do it. Some states make it almost impossible for certain operators to operate within their state. Uh, you have to have all kinds of paperwork. You've got to go through these way, uh, these way stations I see when I drive by. and so It's constant, constant, constant. And I can imagine, even if you have a blowout, the cost of just replacing one of those massive tires has to be a big deal. I just put new tires on my truck for all my stair tires and all eight drive tires cost me $7,200. Amazing. Because I don't buy, I don't buy junk tires. I buy Michelins. I don't buy, I buy all virgin tires where you got to have, you know, stair tires are different, Mm -hmm. but your recap, I never put recap because if you blow a recap on a truck and you got airbags back there, if that recap blows and it takes out a couple airbags and some airlines, now, you're not only paying for tires, now you're paying for mechanical breakdown. I just had a breakdown on my truck. I'm pushing 400,000 miles. Like I said, this is the last truck I'm buying. Two more years it's paid for, I'm getting out, Mark. But I just had a walk. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So you're going to get out of the trucking business? Yes, sir. I got two more years. This truck's going to be paid for, and I'm going to sell it. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, I got a lot of experience in other things, but I've, you know, I've been in this industry a long time. I worked in the office. I operated trucking companies in Chicago when I lived there, and I do have experience in dispatching, operations manager, so I'm not going to be hurting. And but between I, the costs, the taxes, and the regulations, you've had enough. I had enough, Mark. These e-logs, these electronic logbooks, you know, you're only allowed to drive 11 hours a day, exactly. but if you're a local driver, you can, you can do up to 14 hours a day. 
but I'm, you know, I got to shut my truck down after 11 hours, which I could have drove for another three hours. Of you course. Know, I, I'm, I got the stamina. I'm, I'm conditioned to do this. Well, listen, a really good call, Jim. All you truckers, excellent calls on all you folks. Don't hang up. We're going to send you American Marxism. And we're going to continue. I'll be right back. here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Well, another shoe is going to drop tomorrow. It's like a centipede with shoes when it comes to this administration. The commission studying the Supreme Court of the United States and the reforms of the Supreme Court that should be applied to the court, a commission that is, again, lopsided to get a kind of a result, I suppose, is going to issue its preliminary report tomorrow. Preliminary report. Cut 18, go. Uh, the President's Commission on uh, Review of the Supreme Court's suggestion of reforms is uh, said to be wrapping up its work this week. Has, have the Commission chairs presented their findings to the President yet? Has he had a chance to review them in advance of what we expect to be some sort of public report? Right. So uh, so here's where this stands. This is a day of processes in the government. How fun. Um, so the Commission uh, will release the draft preliminary discussion materials tomorrow, which is their, their timeline, or their de- was their deadline, and they will meet that, meet that timeline. Uh, these have not been submitted. Uh, to the White House for edits or feedback, um, and their release will be followed by a public meeting of the commission on Friday. They will then form their final report and submit it to the president in mid-November. So that is the process that will transpire from here. Um, and like we've said previously, um, our, our objective here is to allow for this process made up of a diverse range of experts. That's right. Maoists, Leninists, Trotskyites, and Stalinists. Go ahead voices to move forward um, and represent different viewpoints, and we're not going to comment on it, or the president wouldn't comment on it, until uh, a report is final and he has the chance to review it at that period of time. Hmm. wonder what they'll come up with. wonder how they'll do this. I wonder. They will do whatever they have to do to favor their ideology. That's what this is about. They will do whatever they have to do to, to favor their ideology. And um, they're, just, they're just reaching into every aspect of our government, of our society, and our culture, and pulling it by the throat. That's what they're doing. This is unnecessary. We don't need a commission to look at reforms for the Supreme Court. This is the threat that this administration and the left have hanging over this court. And you better believe these justices, not the uh, radical left activists, that is the Democrats, but the others. You better believe they're aware of this. They're aware of it in the, in the handgun case that they have, in the abortion case that they have, on the religious liberty case that they have. You better believe this is in the back of their minds. 
at least several of the justices, certainly Roberts, Kavanaugh, and uh, Coney. Certainly those three. That's in the back of their mind. And so uh, this is really twofold. Number one, they really do want to fundamentally alter the Supreme Court because they want results. Their results. And number two, it is an ongoing intimidation of the justices to let them know if you step out of line, if you actually uphold the Constitution, if you actually defer to the states, we're coming after you. We're coming after you. And of course, the corrupt propaganda organizations, a.k.a. the big media, they're all fine with this. Because they view this as a game, they view this as politics, they view this as advancing the ball, because they have exactly the same mindset, exactly the same mindset as the most radical elements of the Democrat Party. You heard these kook professors earlier, trashing parents. The Democrat Party is at war with parents, and they're at war with schoolchildren, among others. And so here we're going to have a proposal tomorrow. And so the nation, again, will be sucked into the, into the abyss that is the American Marxist ideology and the various movements. That's what it is. Now, I'm trying, not, I'm trying to figure out how to approach some of these things without being a total wet blanket. Do you know what I mean? without depressing people, but it's difficult. People need to understand what's taking place. People need to understand what's taking place. You have Representative Stephanie Murphy, Democrat of Florida, on the Morning Schmo Show. You have this Politburo that Nancy Pelosi set up with Adam Schiff and other radical kooks and the never-Trumpers. Tweedledee and Tweedledummy. And so Stephanie Murphy, a Democrat from Florida, says, you know, if these, if these Trump aides are not going to comply with these subpoenas that are being issued, well, they ought to go to prison. See, everybody ought to go to prison. Except them. Cut 16, go. We intend to enforce our subpoenas, and the first step will be for us to pursue criminal contempt. What that means is that the committee will put together a report and then um, refer it to the House floor. There will be a vote, and then it goes to the Department of Justice. Would you wow. recommend a vote since they have the majority? Scarborough, would you recommend jail time? Go ahead. Time. I would recommend the full extent of consequences, jail time, fines. We need to make sure that these people understand that this is not acceptable. Yes, that's right. It's not acceptable. We got to get these Trump people. We got to get Trump, even though they're all out of office, even though none of them had anything to do with January 6th, the insurrection, the greatest attack on our country ever. That's right. That's right. We got to send them to prison. No bail reform for them. No. They got to go to prison. If they don't capitulate and do what we tell them to do. Yeah, exactly. What a fraud. Imagine putting yourself in the position of some of these people. Even while out of office, they just keep chasing them down and chasing them down. Keep pursuing them and pursuing them. 
It's not so easy to resist, but they are. And we're going to vote. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, the Democrats, we're going to vote. We're going to vote about uh, criminal referral to the Department of Justice. We all know that Merrick Garland's a moderate. That Merrick Garland, he's an honest guy. He's a fair dude. Don't worry about that. Merrick Garland. The level of totalitarianism in the Democrat Party apparently knows no bounds. Remember I read the the article from Epoch Times. Um, The Madam uh, Van Fleet, G. Van Fleet, who experienced the Cultural Revolution under Mao, and she warned that this is exactly the sort of thing that took place back then. And it is. And it is. Adam Schiff has a book out now talking about the threat to the country and it's ongoing, and of course it's about Trump and the Republicans and so on. This is a guy who abused his authority. This is a guy who is sinister, whether it's a so-called whistleblower or using the Intelligence Committee not to track the communist Chinese or the fascistic Russians, no. To go after Trump, to be used as a as a committee to, to lay a, a pretext, a false foundation to impeach the President of the United States on Russia collusion. They were hoping for the Mueller report. And then a ridiculous Ukrainian transcript of a phone call that was perfectly fine to try and remove a president, a coup, by the Democrat Party using your tax dollars. Your tax dollars. And he's on the same committee, like Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who was anti-cops, who supported a, a group that, that committed violence against cops. Now he's defending cops, of course. Whatever works. I'll be right back. Ulysses S. Grant. You know, he was actually a, not only a great general, but a great president. He really was. And there's a great book out on the topic now. To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876 by Brett Baer. Brett, how are you, sir? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's always a pleasure. You write very, very smart and very compelling books about history and so forth. What caused you to write a book about Ulysses S. Grant? I think he's one of the least understood presidents, and yet one of the greatest presidents. Am I right? I agree. I mean, and that's what I really found. You know, and we've talked before about the previous books I did, about Eisenhower and Reagan and FDR, Churchill and Stalin, and moments in history where I thought history either kind of brushed it over or didn't focus on those moments. That was the beginning, middle, and end of the Cold War. And I was looking for another one of those historical kind of overshot, uh, something that wasn't that focused on, and I looked at Grant's presidency. You know, his eight-year presidency, whenever you, you hear about it, it is always about the difficulties and the petty corruption and the scandals, and there were some. And there were people that Grant trusted uh, as a non-politician who took advantage of him to make money. But his most important role uh, 
was really to win the peace um, after the Civil War, and, and most importantly, the process of Reconstruction in the South to make sure it was successful. And as you dig in here, there are really consequential things that happen. He fights the KKK with federal troops. He pushes and gets through the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, um, giving black citizenship and the right to vote. And, and suddenly it changes the dynamic. Blacks were voting, serving in Congress, in the U.S. Senate, uh, farming, owning property, and making their own livings. And, and you know, he, he really fights for that. And as the book kind of comes to a climax at the end of his second term, the election of 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, and it's contested. Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina have two sets of electors they send up. And it is Grant, after weeks of real violence, where the country is on the brink, teetering to fall back into a second civil war, uh, that kind of leads the negotiation and finds a grand bargain uh, to move forward. And the grand bargain is what? Well, the grand bargain is Rutherford B. Hayes becomes the president, uh, inaugurated after this uh, commission goes through all of the, the different states. And uh, he gets the needed electoral votes. He beats Samuel Tilden technically by one. And in exchange, federal troops are pulled out of the South. The South gets autonomy. Republican carpetbagger governments, uh, governors are, uh, who lost are pulled out. And uh, it begins this process. Now, a lot of people point to that and say oh, that was a really bad thing for African Americans in the long run. The thing that I found was that Reconstruction had, had essentially run its course. The South was really frustrated with it. The North was getting frustrated with it. Federal troops were kind of, it was untenable to go for a long time. So Grant kind of makes this bargain to keep the Union together, and that was always his biggest goal. Now let's talk about Grant and the Klan. The Klan was basically sort of the the Confederate Army in many respects, sort of a militia, uh, and they were extraordinarily violent, uh, particularly, I think, in Louisiana and some of these other states. And Grant sent the Army down there to wipe them out, didn't he? He did. And, um, you know, it wasn't an easy choice to do. I mean, you had just finished the Civil War, where obviously he's a really well-respected military leader, not only in the North, but in the South, too, because he's um, seen as victorious from the North, but magnanimous from the South. And and a lot of good stories about, you know, what he did in the Civil War that gave dignity to some of the Confederate soldiers. But he says that this is, it's getting out of hand, and these militias, which the KKK really were Confederate soldiers who were not giving up the fight. And um, they are causing tremendous turmoil in a number of different states. And he does call in um, federal troops uh, to go down and quell those uprisings. And he essentially erases the KKK in those states, particularly South Carolina, uh, until it comes back uh, decades later in a different form. And maybe I'm wrong. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to remember my history here. Uh, by the way, fantastic book. It just is a fantastic book. It's uh, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. And uh, the House went Democrat in his second term, didn't it? So it made it more difficult for him to do some of the things he wanted to do. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, he, and, and it was starting to go that way. And, and so the writing was on the wall uh, as he's coming to the end of his second term. And he's worried that all of the things that they have fought for are going to be erased. Remember, you know, he, Lincoln had this vision of how Reconstruction was going to work and bringing the country back together. And obviously the assassination happens, and Andrew Johnson becomes president, arguably the most divisive or racist president uh, we, we ever had. Yeah, disaster. It went back yeah. uh, on a lot of things Lincoln was going uh, for. Uh, Grant picks up the pieces after Johnson and tries to get it back on track. Just a, an aside to that story, Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln invite the Grants to Ford Theater that night in April. And uh, the Grants send their regrets because they're going to see their kids at their school in New Jersey. And uh, obviously the assassination happens that night. Grant finds out about it in New Jersey, and he is bereft with grief and guilt because he believes if he was there, even though he would have been a target too, that he thinks he could have stopped um, Booth from killing Lincoln. And, uh, you know, that little nugget, you know, those little nuggets that you find in the National Archives, um, really, if you think about it, would have changed everything if he Mm -hmm. goes to the theater instead of visiting his kids. They were pretty close, weren't they, Grant and Lincoln? They were really close. And um, he, Lincoln had just this ultimate respect uh, for Grant. And um, even, you know, and he, he thought that he was just such a, a, a brilliant military leader. He was, you know, not the average uh, braggadocious kind of leader or somebody that was, um, you know, yelling at people at the top of their, their lungs. He was humble, uh, and Lincoln found him really uh, to be the leader that he wanted to choose. Um, and there was a lot of jealousy inside the Union ranks, and um, he had a, a bout where he got busted for drinking uh, as a soldier out in the Northwest Territory, um, and that was long before. But the generals who had a problem with him getting this command uh, said that he was drunk which was not true according to the other soldiers there, but they told Lincoln that, and mm-hmm. Lincoln reportedly said, uh, well, could you tell me what kind of whiskey he drinks because I want to get barrels of it for my generals. <laughs> That's how, how good he was. Well, let me ask you a question. If you can, I understand. Can you uh, hold over till after the break? Yeah, of course. The book is, it's a great book, folks. The rescue to rescue the republic, Ulysses S. Grant, the fragile Union, and the crisis of 1876. And uh, our friend Brett here writes beautifully. It's just a terrific book. You can go on Amazon.com and get it now. We'll have it on my social sites, such as they are. And I'll be right back. But then, the thunder on the right. Call in now, 877-381-3811. The book is To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. It's a spectacular book by uh, Brett Baer. So just to recap, Brett, um, with respect to Grant, he defeats Lee, defeats the Confederacy. 
He uh, pushes through the post-Civil War amendments. He insists that the free slaves have a right to vote. He sends the army into the South to defeat the Klan. And, um, and he's, he always opposed slavery and this kind of, a, this kind of an attitude toward, uh, the, towards the, the slaves at the time and then the freed slaves. I mean, I, he doesn't get credit for this, does he? He really doesn't. I mean, obviously in the shadow of Lincoln, but, you know, it, it does matter who's writing your history, as that Hamilton song goes in, in the musical. Uh, and I think in Reconstruction, over the years, um, the instinct by historians was to put uh, the negative side of post-Reconstruction on Grant, whereas there were many presidents after that that had the opportunity to change the dynamic, uh, but didn't. You know, Grant... Um, he also didn't tout himself. Uh, he, he writes his memoir at the end mm-hmm. of his life. Um, he trusted, first of all, a lot of people, and he did that in his administration, and there was corruption, uh, several different kinds. Uh, but he also trusts people after uh, his presidency, and he invests money where he loses it all. And he is actually really struggling money was after the presidency, which is hard to believe in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Uh, He starts writing articles for a magazine, and he's getting $500 to write about his Civil War memories. And uh, Mark Twain is a friend, and he finds out how much he's making. And Twain goes ballistic and says to the magazine publisher, how can you do this? He should be making tons more money. So Twain says, you write a memoir, I will publish it, and we will sell it around the country make money for your family. During that time, he has throat cancer. It's diagnosed. So he fights through the pain of throat cancer. He can barely swallow over the, the weeks. And he finishes the memoir days before he dies. Twain publishes the memoir. It's the best-selling book of that time by far. And uh, Julia, his wife, makes roughly $300,000, which is about $14 million in uh, today's day and age. But he was determined to write that memoir. I wish he had kept writing and wasn't sick, and we could get his thoughts about his time as president. But we Mm -hmm. have a lot of his thoughts from from his early days. He preferred being a general, I think, to being president, didn't he? 100%. 100%. But he also, because he liked being with the soldiers, um, you know, there are great stories about his humility, uh, Lincoln requests Grant's presence in Washington so he could be sworn as in as commander of Union armies. So Grant goes to Washington with his son Fred, and they put him up at the Willard Hotel. And he's, again, like he usually dresses, kind of shabby in an old uniform, muddy boots. And he walks in, and not knowing who he was, the clerk said that all the rooms were full, and, and they didn't have any space for him except for a tiny space on the top floor. And he says, fine, he's kind of indifferent to it. And he signs the register, and the clerk glances down and reads, U.S. Grant and Son from Galena, Illinois. And the guy freaks out, goes, gets the manager, and they are escorted to the bridal suite, you know, the <laughs> lavish accomplishment uh, at, the, uh, at the Willard Hotel. But it's just a, nuggets like that show you that he was unpretentious, even as the most popular American figure at the time. And these battles that he was involved in, these were brutal, brutal battles. I mean, uh, 
the casualties in every one of these battles. Today, it's almost unimaginable. And uh, Shiloh, Shiloh was horrible. I yeah. mean, it was horrific. Um, and the first night, you know, they the rebels had captured or killed entire divisions. You know, fields running red with with blood of the, of the fallen, and you know he's with Sherman, who's very close to Grant. He's really his best friend, and and Sherman wants to retreat, and he doesn't think there's any way they could win this battle, uh, but he doesn't say that to Grant because he sees Grant's determination, and 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 Sherman says, "Well, Grant, we've had a devil of a day of it, haven't we?" And Grant says, yes, we'll lick him tomorrow, though. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that Grant had a strategy where eventually he wins Shiloh and uh, changes the dynamic in the war. They said he could read a battlefield like no other general. Is that what you found, too? I found him to be um, everyone who talked about him thought that he was kind of a savant mm-hmm. with military strategy. Um Again, he was not an outward guy. He was not a guy that, you know, you're just palling around with everybody. He was very inward, sort of like Lincoln, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that his military strategy was was better than than anybody, even Lee, who was considered really one of the best at the time. Ladies and gentlemen, you're hearing Brett Bear, and I'm going to say this, Brett, you're very likable. You're very accessible. You're a real journalist. People don't always have to agree with you, but you're a straight shooter. I think uh, your contribution to Fox has been enormous, given how many of my listeners view journalists. But uh, you're just terrific. I consider you a friend. Uh, You write these, these beautiful books about history, and I hope, folks, that you'll go out and get your copy to Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. You can go to Amazon.com. It's right there. It's well discounted. You can have it delivered to you in the next day or two. They're still doing that. And I want to encourage you to get a copy. And we talk about history lessons in school and so forth, if you're homeschooling or even if you're not. This is a critical subject, Ulysses S. Grant. It doesn't get the amount of attention it deserves. He doesn't get the praise that he deserves and I think, Brett, you've done a great thing here in writing this well, book. Thank you very much, Mark. And, you know, after your book's success and all that you wrote about, my takeaway in that vein from this book is that to, to keep our republic really requires constant vigilance. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our freedoms are not automatically given, and, and it has to be pursued and won repeatedly. And uh, Grant was one of those guys who believed keeping the Union together was the most important thing. And here you wrote a book on history, and most of your contemporaries are writing books about gossip and Trump. So I want to congratulate you from breaking away from that mindset, because people are sick of reading that stuff. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, Brett. This is a terrific book. Thank you for book. having me on, friend. It's my pleasure. God bless. I'm telling you, this is a fantastic book. I have it right in front of me. To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. Not enough is said about Ulysses S. Grant. He was a great, great man. He truly was. He truly was. Let's take a couple more calls here. Wasn't he great? We have a lot of great books out right now and great authors. Victor Davis Hanson, Brett Baer. 
We'll have Molly Hemingway next week. And more to come. More to come. All right, let's go to uh, Mark Londo Reels, Maryland. I've never heard of it, but I'm sure it's there. The great WMAL. Go right ahead, please. Top of the day to you, Mark. It's been a long-time listener, and I enjoy your candor with everybody and getting the word out there, especially about the Civil War, being a long-time reader and learning about it. And I wanted to remind people that there was one thing that General Grant always said, that people, if they're going to fight, should fight and get it over with and then become friends. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're always talking about with these Marxists and Democrats is they don't want to be friends with anyone or work together with anyone if it doesn't fit within their ideals. That's and that's exactly a very important right. point that you make all the time. They don't want friends. They want to destroy. What I wanted to tell you was about a decade ago, our government, and I guess the Department of Education, although that might be a bit of a, a press, came out with a thing called Common Core. Mm-hmm. And they hired the experts in education on the subjects at hand that they were going to educate on. And every one of those guys that they hired as an expert quit in disgust when they found out what they were going to be trying to teach the kids. And this is a fine example of what you're always talking about, how these people pay no attention to the people who they are supposed they are their our representatives mm-hmm. and they work for us, but yet they pay no attention to us, Mark. Mm-hmm. No, um, this is what was uh, pushed and indoctrinated into a lot of people starting about 120 years ago with the so-called progressive intellectuals. Uh, They're not much interested in democracy, voting, representative government. They say all these things. They're interested in this massive administrative state where so-called experts are in charge. I don't know why people are considered experts just because they're bureaucrats or just because they're members of the teachers' union or just because they get elected to Congress, what makes them experts? They're not experts. Uh, Most of them are hacks. Uh, Many of them are tenured. Many of them can't be touched for their their stupidity and their incompetence. Uh, And this is what we're dealing with. This this isn't a matter of expertise. It's a matter of power and control. But you're exactly right. Don't hang up, my friend. We're going to get you a copy of American Marxism, and I'll be... Am I going right back, Mr. Badu? I think I am. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. All right, let's see. Let's see if we can fill, uh, get one more call in here. Let's go to Amy quickly. Colorado Springs, Colorado, Sirius Satellite. How are you, Amy? Great, Mark. Wonderful show tonight. Great talking to all the truckers. They're really fascinating people. They are. Um, my com- my comment is just about um, you know Biden. What what scares me about Joe Biden is not only him, but he has a completely incompetent cabinet um, who knows nothing about what their jobs are supposed to be, and that's what you get when you follow woke ideology. Um, for instance, Pete Buttigieg, how is he going to handle transportation? He's been non-existent. Kamala Harris on the border. Um, his, because his, they're all ideologues, and not one of them has the requisite experience to do any of these jobs. 
Exactly, exactly. And just a really quick comment about the Virginia School Board. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and if that ever happened to my daughter and I was not able to defend her, I, I would be absolutely outraged, Mark. Absolutely outraged. That man was manhandled, and he should have never been treated that way, in my view. The prosecutor in the case is a Soros-funded puppet who threw the book at the guy, demanded 10 years in jail. The judge should have seen through this entire thing. This man was wronged. His daughter was raped. The school system covered it up. They transferred the perpetrator to another high school. where He apparently uh, uh, molested another woman, another young girl, I should say. And meanwhile, we're not supposed to have any say in what goes on in our schools, according to Terry McAuliffe, who wants to be governor again of Virginia. Parents should have no say. And you better believe he'll work with Biden and he'll work with Merrick Garland to bring in the, uh, the muscle, to ble- the, the iron fist, to put down any opposition to these school boards and these school systems. Let me just suggest this to you, Amy, and to America. These school boards and school systems need much more opposition. They need many, many more parents attending their board meetings. They need to answer a hell of a lot more questions. These unions need to be knocked down to size to a much smaller size. And we need to take our schools back. Terry McCullough stands in the way. The NEA and the AFT stand in the way. Merrick Garland and Joe Biden stand in the way. But so the hell what? We are red-blooded Americans, and we will exercise our constitutional rights. Where men and women, since the founding of this nation, have given their lives to defend those, those unalienable rights. And the fact of the matter is that school board in Loudoun County is a disgusting disgrace. That superintendent is a, is a bloviated, pathetic, bureaucrat buffoon. There, I said it. Are these threats? Is this harassment? No, it's the truth. And the teachers' unions are out of control, and not just in Loudoun County. You take your communist claptrap and shove it. You take your attacks on faith and morality and family and shove it. You take your attacks on our economic system and shove it. We pay for a quality education, and that's what we demand. Amy, we're going to send you a signed copy of American Marxism. Folks, you can get your own copies at, at the Amazon.com. I hope you'll jump in. Thank you all. We salute all you heroes out there. We appreciate you, and I'll see you tomorrow. God bless. God bless. 